You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Last week, I shared a review of my book that is on Amazon, Women of the Military. And this week, I wanted to share a review of someone who left a review on my podcast. And if you leave a review either on Amazon or on my Women of the Military podcast, I might feature you as well. So here we go. This review says, The mission continues. I have met Amanda in person many times now, and each time she is a beacon of light for women to follow who might be afraid to step out and give their voice and story purpose. She does a great job of crafting the message and conversations with her guests. The real deal. This was from the host of the Military Veteran Dad podcast, which you should go check out. Hello, everyone. I'm excited today because my interview is with the Honorable Deborah Lee James. She has served in senior homeland and national security management policy and program positions for the U.S. government and private sector for more than 35 years. She has led and transitioned large-scale enterprises, including a $2 billion private sector entity and a $140 billion government agency, the U.S. Air Force. Today, she serves on several for-profit and not-for-profit organizations, provides strategic advice to a variety of firms, and speaks on matters of national security, leadership, and other topical areas. She is also the author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Welcome, Debbie. I'm so excited to have you as a guest this week. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to be with you. I want to start with how did you end up working for the Department of Defense? Well, it was actually quite by accident. It was one of those situations where I had an original dream and the original dream didn't work out for me. And so I had to pivot to a new plan and the new plan turned out to be the best one of all. Specifically, what happened was as a young person, I wanted to be in the State Department. I wanted to be a diplomat and travel the world. But although I did all the right things or so I thought through school and learning a foreign language and taking all the right courses, and applying to the State Department when the time came, for whatever reason, they simply didn't pick me. I wasn't selected, and I literally crashed and burned. I went to bed and cried for the better part of a week. But eventually, I got up. I started applying for other positions. I did really want to work in the government, and I did get a one and only one offer, and it was from the Department of the Army at the time as a civilian. And although this was not my original idea, I did need a paycheck. I needed a job, and so I was grateful to have it, and I threw myself into it to do my best. And then the most remarkable things started happening for me after just a few short months. The work was really interesting and I felt a purpose in what I was doing. I loved the people that I was working with. I had a fantastic first team. They took me under their wing. They taught me a lot. And I also had a terrific first boss who I look back upon as an important mentor in my life. And this man opened doors for me. He gave me advice. He made connections for me that I otherwise could have never made for myself. And one thing led to the next, led to the next. And from that first position, 
position in the army led to the next position, and it was all military-oriented from that point forward. And I really never looked back at that dream of the State Department because I had now realized an even better dream. That's kind of cool. So you were planning on doing the State Department, and then you got a job with the Department of the Army, and you just fell in love with all the things you were doing. And Exactly, exactly. And again, I, I want to underscore that word purpose, because I always felt like serving in the diplomatic corps would be, was a big dream. It was something bigger than myself. It was working on behalf of the important foreign policy interests of the United States. Hadn't really had an exposure to the military, didn't really think of that angle. But what more important element of national security is there than the military? So it just goes to show we have to be willing to open our eyes to things that even though we haven't been exposed, we have to be willing to learn about them because you just never know. That could be the best thing ever for you and for your career. Do you feel like there were any big opportunities that happened while you were working at the Department of Defense that just pushed your career forward? Absolutely. I had a number of really fortunate breaks and, and opportunities that came my way. So from that earliest job in the Department of the Army and that first great boss, I was able to launch myself for an internship in the Reagan White House. So this was during the period of the 1980s. And so here I was as a 25-year-old who was able to operate at the highest levels of government, albeit as an intern. I was an entry-level person. But nonetheless, the, the contacts that I was able to make and the issues that I was able to work on were really enormously impactful for me. Also in the 1980s, I was able to get a job on the staff of the House Armed Services Committee. So I had gone now from the executive branch to the legislative branch. I was getting quite a broad view of government, again, always with a military orientation and national security bent. Um, and then in the 90s, I had the opportunity to go to the Pentagon to be an assistant secretary of defense, specifically for reserve affairs. So my portfolio then was the National Guard and reserve forces are part-time military, but they're essential in all of our military operations these days. And then lastly, of course, from 2013 to 2017, I had the opportunity, having spent now 15 years in the private sector, to go back into government as the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force, which was just a, an awesome, phenomenal opportunity. I'm so humbled to have had the opportunity to do it. It will forever, I'm sure, be the best, the best professional experience of my life. That's really cool that you worked on the civilian side and then you ended up becoming the Secretary of the Air Force. How did that happen? Well, of course, under our system of government and under the Constitution, the, there's civilian control of the military. That's a key principle of our government, which is why the president is always a civilian. Now, the president may or may not have had uniformed military experience. Some have and some have not. Similarly, the Secretary of Defense is always a civilian and the secretaries of the Army, Navy, and Air Force are always civilians. Sometimes those civilians have had uniformed experience in their background and sometimes not. So in my case, I did not have that uniformed military experience, but I did have other pieces that are important uh, and are certainly helpful for anyone who will be serving in these sorts of senior positions. So, you know, having had the prior tour of duty in the Pentagon was very important because it's a very confusing labyrinth of offices and policies. And to be able to navigate through that is important. And I had had some experience in that. Also, the experience on Capitol Hill was extremely beneficial because so much of what a secretary does of the military departments is to represent 
your budgetary and policy considerations to the Congress, and you need the Congress's approval in order to go forward. So the congressional experience was very helpful. And then I mentioned I'd had 15 years in the private sector where I had experience bidding jobs to the military. So I understood the business of defense. And therefore, as secretary, I was able to conduct program reviews and work with industry, having the insights that come from actually walking in their shoes. So that too was helpful. So I didn't have the uniformed piece, but I had some other important pieces. And of course, there were many other people to whom that were part of the team that gave advice on the very highly technical military aspects that I needed to understand and, and know. It sounds like your time uh, working in the civilian sector really helped to well round out your all the things that you were doing. Why did you make the switch from your government career to a civilian career? At the time I made the switch, I had been in the um, uh, in the federal service for about 17 years. And by now I was in my middle to late 30s. So I kind of looked around. I was a political appointee at the time. Uh, Political appointments are not forever. They end at the term of the presidency. And so I just didn't see any more opportunities for me to continue to grow and expand. And again, it was a limited term assignment. So I chose my time and I transitioned to the private sector. I thought I was going to take the private sector by storm, just as I had done so well uh, in the government after that first fiasco of the State Department. But in reality, what I discovered is transitions are really, really hard. And so I had a hard transition, actually, leaving the government and into the private sector. I had two good jobs. They were certainly well-paying jobs, but I simply had a hard time uh, getting into the groove of the new routine. And for the first time in my life, quite frankly, I came up across two bosses that were really not good bosses. They were not good leaders. And no matter what I tried to do, I simply could not get in sync with them. And so I had a couple of uh, two, three tough years as I transitioned uh, to the private sector before I really found my way. And when you found your way, what were you doing? I really found my way when I found the company called SAIC. And the reason I found my way there was because I once again fell in with a group of people who represented just tremendous teamwork and once again had bosses and supervisors with whom I felt very much in sync. I understood the vision. I understood the direction. I understood what was expected of me and then I could go out and execute. The other great thing about this company is they cared about me as a professional. So they looked to um, invest in me in terms of professional development rotational assignments. So I began in the area of business development and eventually rotated into a, a general manager position, which is the type of position responsible for the contracts and the customers and, and the people of SAIC. So they invested in me, they took care for my career, and I was able to advance and once again, feel a great purpose. When I heard you talk, you talked about the the job that you guys did when you were doing the MRAPs. And when I was deployed to Afghanistan, I was in an MRAP. So I found that part really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what you guys were doing and what that time working for SAIC meant? 
When I was in my first general manager position at SAIC, I was based in Charleston, South Carolina, and one of our top customers was the Navy command down there known as SPAWAR. And SPAWAR received an emergency order from the Department of Defense. The year was about 2006 or 7, and it was to work on the MRAP program, which your listeners will remember is the Mine Resistant Ambush Protected Program. These were the v- vehicles that needed to be so that our troops would stop suffering such enormous casualties from hitting IEDs while moving from point A to point B within the country. The MRAPs had a new design and they needed, they were more resistant to the blasts of mines and they, it was the top program of DOD. We were the contractor that supported SPAWAR in this effort. And so over the course of about three, three and a half years while I was in Charleston, the workforce that I was overseeing, my team, received about 30,000 of these MRAP vehicles. And it was our job to set up an assembly production line. And we were the people who installed and integrated all of the command and control and other electronic equipment that went within the MRAPs and which allowed the MRAPs to communicate with one another and to operate. And then, of course, we had to push those 30,000 ultimately MRAPs out the back door so that they could be flown or transported by vessel across the seas to Iraq. And again, some went to Afghanistan. So you want to talk about feeling an important purpose in your life. This entire workforce, including me, felt enormous purpose that we were making a very important contribution to saving lives because of working on this MRAP program. And I like to tell that story because everybody needs a paycheck. Everybody needs to work for their money. But working for money alone, at least in my experience, isn't enough. If you don't feel good about what you're doing, if you don't feel that purpose, then you're not going to be fulfilled. And this was the most fulfilling period for me throughout my industry career. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool experience and a way to be really involved in the war fighting, even from home, because that's really important too. Exactly. So you were working at SAIC, and then how did you go back to be the Secretary of the Air Force? In my book, Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success, one of the things I talk about over and over again is the power of the network, the power of mentors. You've heard me mention mentors have been important to me throughout my career. So in the case of how did I get chosen to be Secretary of the Air Force, it really is a combination of the experiences that I had had prior that I mentioned, as well as the network. So the way it happened was I was, you know, very happy working at SAIC. I was a senior executive there and thought that I would spend the rest of my career until retirement at the company. But one day I got a call from someone who I had known since the 1990s, who had been in the White House when I had served as an assistant secretary of defense. And this gentleman was now working in White House personnel. And he simply told me that he was searching for candidates to be considered to go before the president to be the next secretary of the Air Force. And would I be willing to have my name on a list of candidates for consideration? Well, I was so blown away by this and so flattered that, of course, I said yes. But when I hung up the phone, I assumed that this would go nowhere. Because why in the world would they ultimately select me? This, this was the way I was looking at it. But of course, time went by and interviews were, were uh, done. And I went in several times to the Pentagon for these interviews, ultimately getting all the way to Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel. 
Now, I knew when I got interviewed by Hagel that it had to be pretty serious, and certainly there couldn't be five or six candidates in the running. Maybe it had necked down to two. This is all me trying to imagine where they might be in the process. Well, after that Hagel interview, within short order, I got a call asking me for references, and a few days after that, I got a call back from the same guy in White House personnel who said, I don't know what you've been telling everybody, but it must be pretty good because I'm calling to ask you to quit your job and become the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. And that's exactly how it went down. So it was a combination of the experience and knowledge that I had gained over the course of 25 plus years in the national security space, but also the power of that network and that person who remembered me from the 1990s. Do you have any tips on like how to create your network or any tools that you use that you think people could learn from? Yes, I think all of us have networks and we don't even realize it. Our networks are comprised of the people that we work with and at each individual job. So for the uniform military listeners that you have and the women in the military, every duty assignment you have, the people at that duty assignment can become part of your network. The people in your housing location, the people with whom you may attend church or the, 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 your children's uh, parents, their friends, the friends of parents and so on. All of these people can become part of your greater network. The trick is, is to find ways to keep in touch with them, to periodically check in. Don't simply check in uh, with people every 10 years if you need some assistance of some sort or you're having trouble, but rather check in and value those people throughout time. And these days it's easier than ever before thanks to social media. So the way to get a network is simply wherever you go, collect people and value people. That makes sense. Yeah, you have to collect. And I like the value people because it's not just people that you rely on when you're in a pinch. It's people that you have a relationship with that you can work with. And it's not just like a list of people that you go to when you need something. Exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about your time as Secretary of the Air Force and what sort of programs are you proud of from your time? Well, when I was a brand new secretary, within three weeks, I received some bad news. There was a cheating scandal happening within the nuclear enterprise, the ICBMs and the young missileers who were standing watch over these uh, enormously powerful weapons. That cheating scandal, although it was narrow and it involved several dozen people, actually turned out to be a much broader cultural set of issues that we discovered within the nuclear enterprise. And out of that original bad situation, over time, I think grew a lot of good initiatives that actually helped to beef up and make more ready and ultimately to modernize and to, to value the people of the nuclear enterprise more than had been before. So I'm, I'm proud of the um, overall efforts that we did on behalf of the nuclear enterprise. I would say that's point one. Another one I'm proud of is the efforts and the policies and the initiatives that we took to try to improve diversity and inclusion within our Air Force, and I'll put women right at the top of the heap when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So we launched policies and programs designed to access more women into the force, to open up fields that had previously been closed, such as 
fields that were considered to be the direct combat on the ground fields within the special operations area, as well as make it easier for women to become pilots. There were a few procedural matters that we discovered that we were able to eliminate, and that sort of opened the door for more women to be able to apply to be pilots. And then in addition to accession types of initiatives, we also looked very closely, how do we retain more of our great women? Because what we found was women were attriting the Air Force at about twice the rate as men attrited at mid-career. And as you well know, if you lose a lot of people at mid-career, there's going to be a smaller pool to draw from when it comes time to pick your senior leader. So it's important to retain your top-notch talent. And so this had to do with extending the maternity policy, making work-life balance issues easier for men and women, but especially women, and looking for ways to make the work-life balance more flexible for all. So overall, I'm, I'm proud of the diversity inclusion initiatives that we were able to put in place. One of the other things that you've talked about is mentorship and how important it is. Were you able to create a program or do something to mentor people in the Air Force while you were a secretary? Yes, I've been a big beneficiary of mentorship, and I believe strongly that when you get to the point you're able to pay it forward, that it really is an obligation. We all should do it. So when I was Secretary of the Air Force, one of those, we'll call it a diversity and inclusion-related program, was called My Vector, and it still exists today. It is a computer-based program for mentorship, and it's open to men and women, uniformed and civilian, throughout the Air Force all over the world. The way it works is an airman who wants mentorship can go online and register, talk about the types of mentoring that he or she would like to, to have, and then others who are able to be mentors similarly go online, and they register. They talk about these are the areas that I can talk about, and I'm willing to mentor one, two, or three airmen. There, there then becomes a match that is made, and the two can begin communicating. So again, this can happen within the same geographic area so that people can meet face-to-face, -face, or if not, it can be by phone, it can be via computer worldwide. So that's called My Vector, and again, it's open to Air Force personnel, civilian and uniformed men and women. And I hope that that will continue to progress through the years and that more and more people will take advantage of it. Yeah, that sounds like a great program and a great way to get mentorship from someone who's a little bit farther ahead of you. In your book, Aim High, you talked about your upbringing. And I was a little bit surprised because I guess I had this lofty idea of what the Secretary of Air Force childhood would have been like. So can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and how you kept your focus so that you could get to where you are today? I think role models are really important for all of us in life. And what I've learned over the course of my life is you can have both positive and negative role models. So you can see someone and a positive role model is someone who you want to emulate, someone who you want to be like, someone who you want to learn from and travel a similar course. Whereas a negative role model can be someone that you look to and you say, you know, I don't want to be like that. These various traits, I want to do it differently. So I've had both in my life and actually growing up, my own mother was a, I'll say, negative role model. My mother loved me. She took care of me, I think, the best way that she could. But 
she was a, a, a depressive, I would say, personality, a lot of sadness. I think looking back on it, she may have suffered from an undiagnosed mental illness, but a lot of negativity in the household. My parents were divorced and my mom just never had the confidence, never wanted to work outside the home. And consequently, we depended on the child support payments and the um, alimony payments from my father as the only source of income. And believe me, it was never enough. So my sister and I were sort of put in the middle of every squabble over money that my parents had. And there were many of those squabbles. So it was a difficult, it was a difficult growing up period. And if there was one thing I learned from all of that was I was never going to be dependent on somebody else for my money. I was always going to earn my own money. I was going to have a career so that I could take the initiative and seize my own destiny and not be dependent, so to speak, on somebody else for everything that I needed. And I also knew that I wanted to be a different kind of a parent uh, when I had my opportunity to have children, that I didn't want to have a lot of negativity in the household and never to you know, bring children in the middle of squabbles between two parents. So I learned a lot about how not to be a parent and how to be a different type of parent from my mother. And she was an important, I'll say, negative role model for me, though she did the best that she could. And we haven't talked about it, but you are a mom. And I think you just became a grandma recently. I did. <laughs> so exciting. And in your book, you talked about the importance of having balance. And I really thought it was interesting how much you relied on outsourcing and how important it was for you to spend time with your family and not doing all the things. So you, can you talk a little bit about how you were able to do that? Yes. So I would say the principles that everybody should at least consider when it comes to the work-life balance is in your private life, you know, with your family, your children, it's important to set priorities, just like as a professional, you set priorities in the workplace. Not everything that you do on the home front is going to be as important as everything else you do. So clearly there's number one, two, and three. And for me, I knew early on the non-important things were things like the housework, the cooking, the laundry, all of which clearly had to happen to a certain degree. Agree. But the, the old saying, good enough is good enough, really applies here. Not everything has to be perfect. The house doesn't have to be in great shape. You have to have a meal on the table, but it doesn't have to be a gourmet meal. You don't have to become a perfect cook. Good enough is good enough. And for me, the priority was when I got home from, from uh, work, I wanted to spend time bathing the children at their when they were you know very very young reading books doing homework as they got older playing this was the priority and i did not want to do the other things so i minimized the other things i did have the economic wherewithal i was fortunate to have a nanny come to the house and some of these things got done like the cooking or the picking up of the uh, of the house uh, to a basic level and again good enough for me was good enough which leads me to the second point, and that is don't think you can do all this alone. You really need a posse of people to help. So whether that's a nanny, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a parent who lives close by, you need people surrounding you that can help you. And at a minimum, you need backup plans for uh, childcare. And then the third thing I would say is everybody, almost everybody in life is on a budget. Some people's budgets are bigger than others, but everybody's got a budget. And I know childcare is very expensive, but it's the most important thing that you'll invest in if you have young children. And so what I recommend is literally sit down and make a list of all your expenditures and track how you currently spend money because it may be that you can't continue to spend 
money exactly the way uh, that you have in the past if you now need to be able to make room within that paycheck to be able to provide childcare. So make your list and see what are your priorities and can you do without this? Can you do without that? Or can you minimize certain of those expenditures to make room for childcare? That's such great advice. And it's so true. You can't do everything. And I think people sometimes with social media think everybody is doing everything, but I like the good enough is good enough because that's true. That's just have to do good enough. Exactly. I have one last question for you. I want to ask you, what advice would you give to young women who are heading into the workforce? Well, I would say that when I was uh, entering the workforce back in the 1980s, I was standing on the shoulders of the women who had fought the battles in the 1960s and 1970s and had acquired for the rest of us some rights and privileges and expectations that didn't perhaps exist before. So the mantra back then was, you can have it all. Recently, in more recent years, I think there's been a bit of a backlash on that. And there's this other sort of statement that you can't have it all. You know, you sort of have to choose. And I think both of those statements are wrong. So my advice to women uh, who are entering the workforce today is you can have it all, but you can't have it all all at once. And you can't do it all by yourself. So it comes back to, you know, if you want a career and a family, you absolutely can do it but you've got to pick your timing as best as you can. You've got to have help, a posse of people around you to provide you with support. It sure also helps if your job has a certain amount of flexibility within it. And again, part of what we tried to do is provide more flexibility in the Air Force, but you can have it all, just not all at once and not without help. That's great advice. And I really want to encourage people to go and get Aim High, chart your course and find success. It's If you like this interview, you'll love the book. It's just got so much good information and good advice that I've really enjoyed reading it. So I want to, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, thank you very much, Amanda. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's been great to read. I want to thank you for your time and for all your wisdom that you've given us. This has been such an interesting interview, and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. Super. Well, thanks so much. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. 